Hi, this is Tony Tolado, and you're listening to Sci-Fi Talk, the podcast on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, and comics, and how they help us to explore our own humanity. Today is Kip Lee Brown, played Crewman Taylor on Star Trek Enterprise. Our conversation in just a nanosecond. Here is Kip Lee Brown talking about her days in Star Trek Enterprise and her film, Yesterday Was a Lie. Hi, this is Tony Tolano, and welcome to Sci-Fi Talk, as we have a conversation with a talented actress, Kip Lee Brown, who plays the lead in Yesterday Was a Lie, playing Hoyle, who is kind of like the uh, gumshoe in this particular piece of this mystery involving probably the biggest mystery of all, the human heart. Kipley has an interesting background, appearing in Relative Strangers, Living with Uncle Ray, and The Sweet Life of Zack and Cody. Some of you might remember her as crewman Jane Taylor in the episode The Forgotten on Star Trek Enterprise. We'll get to my conversation with Kipley Brown in just a moment. What has 250,000 albums, 80,000 artists, and over 3 million songs? That's Rhapsody, where you can legally download music to burn on CD or create your own playlist. And now you can try it for free for 14 days. Go to scifitalk.com and click on the link for Rhapsody and sign up. Now let's go to my conversation with Kip Lee Brown. Let's go to the phones. It, it's great to talk to you, Kip Lee. Um, I, I mean, I mentioned it to a few people, and you've heard some of the other interviews. What really just impressed me was that you, are, you literally have all the props of film noir. Um, you know, the, the fedora, uh, the hard-drinking, hard-boiled detective. The biggest difference that I liked, instead of seeing this with a man, we're seeing it with a woman. And yet you also get, you know, from what I've seen from some of the stills, to also express your feminine side. So a role that definitely has its challenges because of, you know, the duality of it in that way. Absolutely. Oh yes, this was this was quite a lion to tame. <laughs> um, which often the best roles are in scripts that are this complex and incredible. Mm-hmm. I just fell in love with the script right, right away. Um, but in terms of sort of stepping into that very male-dominated stereotype, you know, the hard-boiled detective. Yeah. It was very very daunting, but probably you know, in some ways, I'm lucky because it would be less daunting than trying to fill in a stereotype that's been done perfectly. Like, for instance, if this was a male character, people would start comparing him to Bogart, and, you know, the, the, the greats, um, you know, in a modern context, and it's hard to live up to, you know, when something's been done so well for so long. So people don't really have a lot to compare my portrayal with. So, you know, that gave, gives me some latitude. Um, but, it, you know, it was, it was very daunting because some people may not understand why this character chooses to embrace her masculine side the way that she does. Of course, you know, the, the film is not linear, and we see the character of Hoyle in other timelines when she does embrace more of her feminine side. Right. You know, it's funny. I always loved film noir growing up as a kid, and I always dreamt of playing a female film noir detective. This is absolutely true. In, wow. in high school, I created a character. I was like a, one of those forensic nerds, you know, speech and acting team. And I created a character named Scarlet Black. Um, who was a female PI, and it was a, more of a comedic take on the whole thing. But mm. you know, I used that character for years um, as a monologue, or uh, I do sketch comedies, or the character in sketch comedy. And then when this script came across, you know, I was like, "All right, it's about time!" And boy, have I, have I been waiting for this one because 
you know, I've always dreamt of, of it being handled really well. And you know, sometimes they'll they'll take a female and put her in a man's role, but they'll really vamp it up, you know, like she's right. a femme fatale. You know, and in this way, Hoyle isn't the femme fatale. She's a human being, so multidimensional. You know, ultimately, when I felt myself feeling daunted by the task of playing this, I had to remember that this is a journey of a human being, not a man, not a woman specifically, but the, the truths that she's seeking are universal to both genders. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, when you're in that world and you got the fedora and, you know, you got the glass, with, with the props, as, you know, a lot of actors have said, helps them to get to where they need to go. Was that, did you find her, uh, you know, that way or... Did, I know you had a lot of rehearsal, yeah. was, uh, was, or was she found in the rehearsal process? A little bit of both, mm-hmm. because we did have so much rehearsal that, and, and for a project like this, um, I had to read the script multiple times just to understand exactly what was going on. And I'm not trying to say the film will confuse you necessarily, but there's a lot going on. It's one of those things that when you read the script, you can read it again and find something new each time you do. And I wanted to do it justice and, and really embrace all the aspects. I mean, I had to do a lot of research to to play Hoyle into things that I would never have normally maybe studied, things like alchemy and metaphysics and questions better left for physicists and philosophers that are posed throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them are sort of ephemeral qualities that it's hard to nail down into a solid character. Hoyle is also looking for these answers, so I embrace the fact that we're both very confused and we're trying to seek the truth. And the, the props, you know, like I grew very attached to my prop gun. <laughs> I was like doing all the little tricks, you know, trying to, to flip the cartridge back in without using my fingers, you know, the little, like, quick flip. Oh, yeah. Proud of myself. <laughs> I actually did it in the film, but that take didn't work, so it got cut. Oh, well. It was pretty cool. Maybe it's on the DVD. You never know eventually. Uh, I hope so, because, you know, <laughs> I, it's all in the wrist. Yeah, yeah, I would think so. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the costuming, absolutely, you know, it's, it's icing on the cake. You, you form the personality of this person that, you, that you're going to inhabit, and then when you wear their clothes, it's just, it sort of is the, the button on it, you mm-hmm. know, the period on the end of that sentence of, you know, finding out who they are. And it, it was, you know... It was cool, you know, walking around at Fedora, and it's not a very intellectual take on it, but it, you know, it was fun. It was really fun being able to dress like that. You know, the props at times were difficult. Like, I remember one scene, and this isn't giving anything away, but I have to juggle a flask, a watch, and a cup of coffee. In about a 10-second period, I deal with them all with one hand. (laughs) <laughs> well, hey. Uh, you know, they're, I'm just sort of using one, putting one down, putting one back in the pocket, drinking out of that, you know, and trying to look like I'm not freaking out, trying to get it right. You know, trying to look like I'm not concentrating more on the use of the props than I am on the scene. But we, we, we tackled that one. How many takes did it take to get it right? <laughs> well, you know, because this is a, a independent film, we didn't have a huge budget. Right, and right. We didn't have the, you know, luxury of numerous takes. So it... it we did three or four takes that, that were definitely usable, but I believe the last one I just sort of whipped each thing in and out, you know, without it getting caught in the jacket. I think it just, I finally nailed it at the end. Hey, that's good. Only four takes. I'm impressed. I think it'd take me like a hundred to well, do all that. I had to practice that. I'm sure you did, yeah. We'll have more with Kipley Brown discussing Yesterday Was a Lie and her days on Star Trek Enterprise. There's this one shot in the trailer 
that is so cool. And it's like the classic film noir moment. And you have to really credit the director of photography and James for just getting everything perfect where you're walking and you have the fedora on and the, you know, the black and white is just beautifully the way the light is just and the shadows that it creates. And then there's like the fog around you. You can almost hear like a Dashiell Hammett narration in the background. Uh, it's amazing. Th those kind of scenes, though, must have been difficult to stage where you really have to move a certain way because it just has to be perfect when it finally comes out. Well, you know, I will say that, and, and I agree with you, James and his, um, Jill Kerwin, who was the, um, the artistic you know, director, both know exactly what they want. James would not settle for less than what his vision was. I respect that because, you know, it, it, it's such a beautiful script that to skimp on any part of it is doing it an injustice. So those scenes, you know, the classic beautiful noir scenes, probably the most difficult thing was getting the fog to behave. I bet. You want it to just be in this wonderful billowy pattern and sometimes the wind would come and, you know, it would sort of float off to the side or be out of the light. So that was sometimes the hardest thing was the fog. And mm -hmm. boy, did I inhale a lot of that stuff. <laughs> you know, how was the uh, the shooting schedule for you? I would think because you're, you know, you're the lead, you probably would be in a lot of the scenes in the film. I'm in every scene in the film, actually. Wow. I would think, yeah. Well, we shot mostly uh, at night yeah. from about 6 in the evening till 6 in the morning. You know, I kind of had jet lag for a little while because it's a film noir. Almost all of it takes place at night. And you can't simulate that very well during the day. And we were shooting in August when, you know, the days and into September when the days were starting to get a little bit shorter, you know, so our time would run out a little bit more each time and the sun would start coming up and we'd have to hurry off you know, try to get that shot before before the sun hits. Mm -hmm. So that was a challenge. We we had a very ambitious shooting schedule because, again, because we, we are lower budget film, we, we couldn't spend three months on, on the right. project. Mm -hmm. um, originally, they wanted to do an 18-day shoot, which, in retrospect, would have been a nightmare to get everything we needed in such a short amount of time. So we did a 24-day shoot, which was just enough time. We probably could have used a little bit more to you know, have a little breathing room, but we got it yeah. 24 days yeah. and not a minute less. I think I was only off maybe one of those days when they were just doing exterior shots and and establishing shots. But other than that, I, I was on set every single day. And actually, a lot of it was on location, too, around Los Angeles. So uh, Yes, all of, all of our locations were in Los Angeles, and there yeah. was one in San Diego. Wow. And one of, one of our locations <laughs> is, isn't a an abandoned hospital that they rent out now for, you know, production crews. But when we had downtime, I would just sort of wander around and they say it's haunted, you know. Mm. It was a very eerie, creepy, and they, they left behind a lot of equipment, beds and, and wheelchairs and bedpans, and it's sort of crumbling and falling apart. Mm -hmm. Very, very neat sort of urban spelunking you know, <laughs> excitement I'd love to explore. Cool. Now, the thing is about this uh, this movie, even though it looks like 1940s, there's things like computers and, and more modern stuff, too, which um, kind of gives it a Batman, the animated series, time-displaced kind of thing, which I think makes it kind of interesting, too. I think it, gives it makes it its own thing, you know? Yeah, well, that actually ties in really well with the, the basic premise of the plot. You know, what exactly is time and, and how sort of time is maybe not as straightforward as we think. Likewise, you know, we, we went, or James and, and went for a style that 
was reminiscent of the 40s, but had all of the trappings of today, so that it's sort of in this alternate universe. Yeah. Where they both meld together, where time isn't quite as fixed as we think it is. Hmm. And that goes along with the script really well, too. That's very cool. Now, you know, I know you can't say much, but it just seems to me that Chase Masterson's character of the singer has a big impact on Hoyle's life. Am I kind of in the right territory there? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. The singer is a very mysterious character that sort of attaches herself to Hoyle. She's there, we think, to guide Hoyle through this series of sort of clues that she needs to follow to find what she's looking for. But at the same time, she has to allow Hoyle to actually make the discoveries herself. So she has to lead her in a way without overtly saying anything. So she uses these sort of playful tactics of dropping a hint here and there. or You know, she's kind of like, um, I want to say like the dungeon master. I don't know if that's <laughs> the right thing, but she, we get the impression that she knows what's going on. She can't tell Hoyle directly, but, but she can guide her. It's an interesting relationship because Hoyle is very independent, very closed off. She plays all of her cards close to her chest, and she doesn't like not knowing what's going on. So the singer frustrates her because she knows that, you know, she's there to, to try to tell her something, but she's not telling her what it is, and, and she gets very frustrated, and she doesn't know if she even wants to follow this woman at first. But then the relationship becomes much more uh, close as Hoyle sort of surrenders to the idea that she's not in control, and she has to allow herself to be guided. Mm-hmm. Is that a tough thing for a character who likes to be in control to do? Absolutely. Again, there's there's alternate timelines. And right. the, the fedora Hoyle, the one that's really dressed like the man, um, is, is the one that's the most closed off. Things hmm. have happened that you discover throughout the film that has made her part of the way she is. Mm-hmm. And that's the Hoyle that really, really sort of fights against the singer's help because she thinks she can do it on her own. She, it, you know, it, it, she doesn't necessarily believe this woman can possibly know what's going on or that she could possibly guide her, and yet every step of the way, she, she drops these little clues, and lo and behold, they lead to something that Hoyle needs. Very cool. Yeah, I just, you know, just from talking to all of you so far, I just got the impression, impression from Chase, and now you, of course, that there was just something between them that was more than meets the eye, you know, and uh, and plays a big part in in the story itself. So that's pretty cool. So I'm looking yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing that relationship on screen. Yeah, you know, and and we had originally cast someone else in the part of the singer. Yeah, I heard. Yeah. And then she got another project or something. So I was at that time working with James rehearsing, and this is several years ago. You know, I was in pre-production for a while, too. Yeah. And uh, we auditioned a bunch of people, and, you know, the minute Chase walked through the door and opened her mouth, it was like she just knew this character. And it just clicked. I I knew, you know, boom, Mm -hmm. there she is, there's the singer. And it was lucky for us because not only is she a phenomenal actress, but she went on to be a producer of the film and really got a lot of stuff done. Um, she and James make a great team. Let's take a break, but back in a millisecond. That is the most theological attitude. Well, maybe a little longer. Yeah, I'm really actually uh, really impressed with what she's uh, told me. I mean, I I have a, an idea of what it's like to produce a film, not having done one, but I know it's just a lot of 
getting the things that the director needs. Mm -hmm. And uh, for her to make that happen and to make this happen is really a nice feather in her cap, and I oh, hope yeah. it's... Uh, I mean, she really jump-started it. I don't know if we would have gone into production as early as we, as we did. Mm -hmm. It might have taken longer mm -hmm. uh, if she hadn't been there to really, you know, make the calls, and she knew a lot of different people, and... Yeah, she really worked, worked really hard on this, and it shows. Well, and she had to memorize her lines and do the same. Exactly, I know. Multiple I know. hats on set. And not to mention sing four songs, too. As, yes, I know. She is, she's a triple threat. Yes, she is. She is. The funny thing is, before yesterday, I had interviewed Chase at a convention. She had a CD that had come out called The Thrill of the Chase, mm -hmm. and it had a lot of the song types that and style of that were used in film noir movies of the 40s and we were talking about that time period so you know ironically years later here we are and and you know this film so i think it's uh it's a it's a nice little it, it must have been something in the fates or the winds that I steered see, her yeah know, I, it just seems perfect because she had just the right look and of course we had considered going with an actress who couldn't sing if she acted properly and then dub it in, mm -hmm. but that's a whole other nightmare. And to have oh, yeah. someone walk in with a gorgeous voice who's familiar with the genre of that music and who is a great actor was just a blessing. Yeah, she was. Uh, she, in some ways, she was born to play the singer. You know. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. And and um, you know, for as much as Hoyle is is sort of closed off and masculine, you know, the singer is a very beautiful, very feminine character. So yes. She, we balance each other well. Yeah, yeah. You, you've worn some pretty nice, uh, out, you know, outfit uh, in the movie from what I've seen, too. Yes. That's very they're, feminine. They're, yes. So. Um, in, in alternate sort of times. Of, right, right. Yeah. Coyle is a woman and, and appreciates that and kind of uh, uses it sometimes um, to get, you know, information. Yeah. You know? Hoyle does at times embrace her femininity, and rather than run from it, I think the, the, the fedora and the trench coat is as much sort of a costume for Hoyle as it was for me. Okay. For her, I don't think she realizes that it's a costume. It's, it's a defense mechanism. Close mm -hmm. yourself off. Mm -hmm. you yeah. know, wrap yourself in this coat. Put on a hat. Don't let anyone see in. Now, there is one set that I know Chase told me about was the, um, the nightclub. Um, how was that to uh, to work there and to do a lot of some of the scenes there? It was great. We we worked at the M Bar. Yeah. Structurally, it, it's just perfect. We didn't have to. You know, the crew and, and and Jill Kerwin didn't have to do a whole lot to change the appearance to give it that 40s feel that already had it. Oh, that's great. And I I had been to the M Bar before, previous to this movie, and mm -hmm. uh, you know I think Monday nights they have open mic comedy nights. You know, so. It, Coming in and have, using it as a set, a place I'm already familiar with, was was great. And the owner's wonderful. Oh, that's great. He was very generous and kind, and and uh, he even has a cameo in the film. Oh, there you go. <laughs> that's great. Well, you know, it sounds like a, a, a really interesting project. One thing that John Newton mentioned, um, I love the way he put it. It looked like he was an extra from Superfly or Car Wash because he had to wear different colors that, don't look good in color, oh, but yeah. but they look dynamite in black and white. Did Hoyle have those uh, color challenges too? Oh my gosh! Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yes indeed. Um, there's a scene. Well, first of all, uh, Hoyle's clothing. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it looks like she's wearing sort of a light-colored shirt, maybe right. a black tie, yeah, a trench coat. The shirt was was almost sort of a fuchsia green. Oh wow! The tie yeah. was sort of a pea green. <laughs> um, you know. It, 
anyone, if I just walked down the street to get a cup of coffee, people would stare at me like, someone's colorblind. <laughs> have her mother help her dress. They look ridiculous in real life, but on, on camera, they look beautiful. <laughs> and believe it or not, Chase and I, for reasons I won't you know, explore, but the singer and Hoyle share some physical characteristics. Mm-hmm. And uh, so our hair was supposed to be very similar. When Chase auditioned, she had sort of auburn red hair, and right. I had sort of dirty blonde hair, naturally. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had to go through a series of different shades of blonde <laughs> to yeah. find the right one that would translate on film well. And it turned out to be a very, very light color, which I, at first, you know, I, I, it took some getting used to. Uh, for my real life, but it looked beautiful on film. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it looks, yeah, definitely. That's the thing. It's it's what photographs well, you know. Oh, and there's a, you know, speaking of crazy colors, there's a scene in Hoyle's office, Mm -hmm. and it just looks like sort of a Spartan office, not a whole lot of personality, and maybe gray beige walls, maybe. Mm -hmm. The walls were a bright turquoise. (laughs) (laughs) So we were sort of in this psychedelic office, you know, filming a film noir. You know, you had to sort of tune out the colors (laughs) to get the feel. But on film, it looks amazing. Yeah, I've seen some shots in the trailer of the office, and I would never know it's anything but, like, you know, the the gray walls, and that's what they photograph as. So it's it's amazing how they how they do that. And I know they actually shot it in color and then color corrected it later so that it would give it that perfect black and white uh, feel to it. That's Fortunately, they, they did look on – they had a – they watched the monitor. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, there you really go. It's important for James to see sure. how, how it would look. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. some of the shots in the film just take my breath away. Our cinematographer, um, Jason Koshard, was brilliant, and he and James, you know, really were a wonderful team. And some of the shots, I, I want to take stills of them and print them up and hang them on my wall. They're just so, just so beautiful. Yeah. Well, people can actually see those, a lot of the great shots in the, at the website. Yes. So, uh, I mean, there's some, I mean, I was just blown away by some of the film noir style shots, and it was just like, I, you know, a lot of them were taken on the set, so, I mean, they just looked really, really good, and I was really impressed with that. James really did his research, and it was really refreshing, too, because I've, I've worked on projects where the director pretty much knows what he wants, but... Once he gets on set, it's kind of fly by the seat of your pants. Let's see what we discover here or there. Yeah. You know, that his vision becomes firm as he's there on set. Well, mm-hmm. James's was firm before we got there. Mm-hmm. He knew exactly what he wanted, which cut down on, on a lot of time. I mean, he just knew what he wanted. Cool. You know, what was in his head. Uh, he had these, these storyboards that he drew himself. And, you know, there, there are these funny stick figures, you know, I, I remember looking at one and saying, is my butt really that big? <laughs> you know, he, he, he's not, you know, he didn't try to be Michelangelo when he was drawing these. But it's amazing to compare Yeah. his storyboards with what happened on the screen because it, it happened. Yeah. Not, yeah. not what he wanted. Now, have you had a chance to see the entire, I mean, they just finished it, but how, how much have you actually seen of the film at this point? I have seen a rough edit. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and I saw we, we had uh, some looping. Oh, there you go. So I saw a good portion of it. Of course, that's not the same. The music's not in there. And it's, sure. You know, the the ambient sound. And it just looks better and better because the, the, the copy that I saw, they hadn't yet done the correction, color correction, and some of the filters that they're going to put into it. We're hopefully going to, you know, going to be able to see a screening of it before a, a wider audience <laughs> so that I can yeah. 
get in on the ground floor and know what, what I'm in for um, soon. Mm-hmm. I, I really look forward to it. I can't wait to hear Chris Carter's final score. Yeah. I've actually heard some of the uh, – he sent me some files, and actually I'll be talking – I've already – by the time this airs, I've already talked to him, and you probably have listened to it, folks. But uh, he, the music is uh, is just, you know, in keeping with the film noir tone, it's uh, it's really good. I mean, he really captures, uh, you know, the film noir style extremely well. So I'm so glad to hear that. I didn't yeah. know it for a second, but but hearing it is, you know, just wonderful confirmation. Oh yeah, such, yeah. such a talented person. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think you guys uh, lucked into a few people like that uh, for this film. So it's uh, it's cool to get that when a lot of cool people come together and and you know, to me, it looks like it could be something really special. It's something. It's so hard to you know describe something like this, but. Uh, I kind of like nonlinear stuff anyway, and things related to time. So, I would I would definitely dig this. Yeah, I'm a big sci-fi fan. Oh, you know, cool. And a noir fan. So combining the two, I'm in hog heaven. Mm-hmm. And it is. I mean, the script by itself just was phenomenal. And I worried. You know, I became very protective of the script. You know, I worried that well, if we didn't have a big enough budget, we you know it wouldn't look on the screen like I saw it in my head when I read it. But with these great people working on the set and with James's very firm vision, it happened. And I'm so thrilled. I mean, it, it's rare that an independent film can, can make itself look like a big-budget film the way I believe we did. Yeah, I mean, the trailer, I mean, every frame looks really good. You know, you wouldn't you wouldn't guess. I, guess, I think I would be surprised if I would have heard what the budget was for it. You would be, yeah. It, yeah. Looks, it looks like we spent millions on this. Yeah, yeah and, it looks really you know, good. James took a big risk by shooting it in black and white. Yes, exactly. Because these days, you know, you know, people, they, they want their color. They want their high yeah. color. Yeah. You know, so for an independent and, and a relatively unknown director, I mean, he, he's known in, you know, theater circles and various other things, and he's done some other projects. But for him, as his first major project, to do something so risky that may turn some people away, mm-hmm. I really admire that. But it couldn't have been done any other way. I mean, there were discussions of filming it in color. But, you know, it just, it, when it came down to it, none of these characters could exist in color. They're just, they, they are noir characters, the moody, foggy, beautiful black and white contour. Oh, yeah. No, that's, it belongs that way. And I don't think it's such a big stretch with, you know, like with movies like Sin City and 300 that manipulate and, color anyway. Yeah, the man who wasn't there. Yeah, so. so fortunately, yeah, it's becoming a little more stylized now. Maybe. Yeah, so that's, that's a cool thing. Yeah. Uh, now, fans might remember you from Star Trek Enterprise. And yes. in the third season, uh, you played Crewman Taylor. And just to, yes. to kind of rehash the plot for people <laughs> who don't know, this is after a big Zindi attack that really – I've never seen any Enterprise as beat up as this one was. Oh yeah. And there were casualties, and your and your crewman Jane Taylor was a casualty. And then, as it turns out, Trip, played by Connor Trenier, of course, had to write a letter to your family, you know, to com- express his condolences and to let them know you died. And he was having a hard time with that. And then, in the scene that you were in, you you visit him. Uh, and he was in your old quarters, and, he, and you visit him, and you have a nice little scene together. What was that like for you to, uh, to, to, number one, to do the show, and also to kind of be in this set that has this discombobulated this uh, room that's all you know, literally blown to bits? 
Well, I I will start by admitting that I am a huge Star Trek. <laughs> there you go. Um, specifically, the Next Generation. That's yeah. One of my absolute favorites. I I have them all on uh, DVD box sets. Oh, there, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm a I'm a big fan. When I got the call to audition for Enterprise. Of course, I was through the roof then. <laughs> um, and I, and I, you know, usually you go through a series of auditions, and and you know, you may never hear back, or you get the part. You know, so I went through a few auditions with the casting directors, and then they called me back, and I was really excited. And I walk in, and they didn't warn me, and there's Lavar Burton. Yes. Sitting on the couch, he mm-hmm. directed that episode. That's right. And so I walked in, and my jaw just. Uh, fortunately, I held it together, but my jaw almost dropped to the floor. You know, <laughs> but you want to appear very professional and very. You're there to do a job, you know, but it was like, oh, my gosh, I'm in front of Jordy. <laughs> um, of course, I, yeah, I didn't say that. But, um, you know, and I since discovered, oddly enough, that if a, an actor um, shows too much enthusiasm for Star Trek, they sometimes hesitate to cast them because often right. they're off the set with things that do not belong to them. Oh, I can understand that. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, fortunately, I wouldn't have done that, of course. But, yeah. you know, I, I kind of didn't say, oh, my gosh, LeVar Burton, you're amazing. You know, once, once I was on set, had the job contract, and I said, wow, this is great. And he was so nice, so down to earth. And speaking of, you know, working on that discombobulated set, <laughs> yeah, they, they had to rough up my quarters. But they also, it's a little difficult to see because I'm very pale and sort of ghost-like in this scene. Yes. But they do rough up my uniform and my hair. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I did see a little bit of that. Scene. I look like I might have been through something. Yes, exactly. LeVar Burton was trying to get the right balance between how my quarters look and how I look. Yeah, yeah. So they would rough me up a little bit, and I'd go down to see him, and he'd say, okay, that's 15% too much rough. Mm-hmm. Tighter up a little bit. And the quarters, too. Yeah. You know, so we went through some makeup things to get it just right like you know so that i sort of match my quarters Mm -hmm, away mm -hmm. you can hardly see it in a shot but they did sort of a green screen of me with my quote parents in front of starfleet academy oh wow yeah i wish i had asked for that before i left yeah i I would have been allowed to have it but yeah i wish i'd asked oh yeah absolutely that would have been cool i think sometimes acting is like a tennis match where essentially uh, one serves, the other one has to serve back. You know, but you have to kind of play at least to the other person's level. And and at times you can't go above it too much, but you have to at least be able to hit the ball back. Yeah, you have to look like you're in the same scene. Yeah, and, and, and in this scene, you guys were, you know, you were working with Connor, and I think he's great too, but you guys were going back and forth and just like, your response is, you know, trying to make your case for who you were. You know, he's kind of still searching as to how to approach this and deal with, you know, with your character's death. And so, in that episode, he's also grappling with the death of his sister. Exactly right, yeah. So he's projecting some of his remorse about her. Yes, yeah, uh, yeah. Onto to my character, which I believe was a similar age. That's um, right. He was so nice, first of all, and that helps when you feel relaxed with an actor. Sure. So he was just down to earth and really nice. They all made me feel really comfortable. You know, I really felt like I could, quote, let my hair down and really just get into the scene. Yeah. Uh, which I would have done anyway. It was such a pleasure working with him because, you know, you, you do each line several times from different angles. Mm-hmm. And some some actors, you know, when the, when the camera's only on you, but you're reacting to a line they say off screen, they kind of you know, phone in that line. Yeah, exactly. They're not being seen. Exactly that's right. probably not the take, you know, they're not the audio take they're going to use anyway. That's right. Um, so you have to try to react to the way they would have said the line, and he never did that. He, wow. 
you know, gave 100% when, when he didn't need to, you know, just to give me the, the fuel to get what I needed. It's a very unusual scene, seeing as I'm the only, I think, red shirt <laughs> already dead. Yes. But uh, I thought, you know, that's what we were kidding around earlier when yeah. that uh, I thought you were, they, you know, after all the years of just nameless red shirts being killed, they said, well, we're going to give this one a face and let you know that when people die in this universe, it really does make a difference to these characters. So, yeah. So yeah, I thought that was a nice right. touch. It's time for red shirts to unite. Absolutely. <laughs> we matter. Mm -hmm. As a fanboy myself a little bit, I got to ask you the uniform. What was it like to wear the uniform? Surprisingly <laughs> comfortable. Really? Wow. One piece, and it's sort of a denim material. Oh, okay. But to me, it was it was really comfortable. Mm -hmm. You know, I had many hours waiting before they had me go on, but I had to be ready at any minute. Sure. So I was in that thing for about 12 hours, and I can't complain. Oh, very I really cool. Can't. I, I would not want to have to wear a next-generation uniform. Those are comfortable. Well, cool. That sounds like a great experience. And oh, it, it was. Yeah. You know, just to have been mm -hmm. on a Star Trek Oh, yes. Yeah. I was thrilled. You were in a project called Relative Strangers, but you're actually, they say that you're not credited on, <laughs> on I the, was in a little scene that ended mm -hmm. up on the cutting room floor. Oh, wow. Maybe I'll be in, in um, <laughs> these special features, but there I you got go. to do a scene with Ron Livingston. Oh, yeah, I like Ron, yeah. Yeah, and that was fun, and, and also Danny DeVito and Kathy Bates. Oh, jeez, wow. At the L.A. Zoo. <laughs> <laughs> it, was a, it was a really fun time. You know, I, I just had a little walk-on where I go up to Ron's character. You have to prepare for that as an actor, especially mm -hmm. with a, a little part. Pleasure to be able to work with these people. So that's part of what acting is. Sometimes uh, you have to do things that aren't very big, but, you know, they're, they're key to a scene. They have to do something to provoke a reaction or whatever. So you kind of have to be in the right mindset to kind of do that, I guess, you know? Yeah, I mean, the old adage is true, you know, there are no small parts, just, you know, small actors. Well, I agree with that totally. I really do. I think that's, uh, that is so true, though. You really see that because, uh, you know, you see a lot of actors in small parts on, on TV or whatever, and I've just seen them kill a scene, you know, and the reality partially goes right out the window until the lead you know, rescues it a little bit, but, you know, for a second there you go, oh, he's acting, you can see that. Oh, it, yeah. I mean, yeah. When, when an actor's really invested and good, you know, it's almost like the best ones you don't notice. Yeah, exactly. They're doing their job. Oh, yeah. You know, they're adding yeah. verisimilitude. They're, they're creating yeah. the universe that, that the show or movie wants you to see. And then the ones that sort of, you know, the doctor will see you now, yeah. you know, suddenly, boom, reality crashes in, just like you said. They take you out of the moment, as they say, and then you're, you know, you it, it it's hard to get back. You know, at times you never get back. So yes, that's you know, that's why it it. they they, they kind of weed these out for television and yeah. movies. But I, there's two like small line. Either you know you're really invested in and you do the job really well. Then there's the person who can't act and they sound like you know they're wooden. Yeah. And then there's the person who decides that they are going to make this line the best acted version of this line like Shakespeare couldn't do it any better couldn't couldn't Laurence Olivier would say the doctor will see you now and that takes you out of the scene too sure sure uh, but I've met I've met those types too fortunately uh People don't cast them when they do that. Yeah, more than likely, I would think. No. <laughs> do you have anything coming up that you want to talk about that's that you're working on? 
it's a far cry from from film noir, but I, yeah. I do a weekly sketch comedy show. Oh, there you go. In Hollywood at the Improv Olympic. Oh, that sounds cool. And it's called Big News. Oh, there you go. Uh, and it's every Sunday night at 10 o'clock. Oh, wow. And, um, if I may shamelessly... Oh, please, please. I'm really, really proud of this. I've been doing it for about four years, and there's a tremendous cast, and we also have a, a big pool of really talented writers. So we write a whole new show every week based on... Wow. That's you know, tough. Rehearse off book with with props and and costumes when we can. You know, it's a full show, but a new one each week. That's not it's easy. Tough, but it's rewarding. Yeah. And we, you know, we've been doing it for about four years, and we've really found our our groove. And it's, I encourage anybody to come out and see it. Yeah. At ten Improv Olympic in Hollywood. Yeah, there you go. Well, so sorry, shameless no, proselytizing. Is like comedy something else that really that you know? It sounds like it's obviously a, a, one of your passions too. Um, it is. You know, my my first passion it was dramatic acting. That's really mm-hmm. what I got into. I lived in. I grew up around Chicago, mm-hmm. and you really can't be an actor in Chicago and avoid Second City. Oh yeah. Oh You yeah. know, it's sure. A, it's such an icon there. You know, so I took classes and I did some improv and. You know, so that I found I enjoyed that too. Yeah. So I like to keep a healthy balance. Yeah, I think they complement each other well because some of the the lessons you learn in performing comedy, you can use in drama and vice versa. I think comedy is most is the most difficult thing you can do because being funny is is difficult. People don't realize it until you have to be funny. So I think if you can do comedy, drama is much actually much easier. Yes, in many ways. And, and, you know, the best dramas, I think, bring a little comedy to them. Oh, absolutely. Like nothing's ever black and white. Yeah, like, there you go. <laughs> exactly <laughs> right. <laughs> nice segue back to the movie there. Yeah. Well, I'm actually uh, engaged to a comedian. Yeah, learning about comedy at home and abroad now. <laughs> well, that's great. At least, well, at least that's a good, that could be a fun relationship in a lot of ways, I'm sure. Oh, that's, yes. That's great, though. Well, you know, I, I'm really uh, glad that we had a chance to talk. And, uh, you know, I was telling Chase, I, I got to talk to, you know, I got to talk to Kipley. I mean, she plays the lead. I got to, you know, I got to find out what's going on in her head about this character because I'm really curious. Oh, you know? I'm so glad you did. I know they tried to set it up a couple times. Yeah, I was, yeah. The last time I was out of town and I was in North Carolina at uh, a place called Ocracoke, and they had no cell service there. Oh, wow. Actually, there's a lot of shooting going on in that area, too, as a matter of fact, uh, in the North Carolina area. Uh, yeah. yeah, a lot of TV production. I think they even – Dawson's Creek was actually Wilmington, shot there. Wilmington, I believe it was. Yeah, Wilmington, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's so beautiful there. I mean, oh, yeah. But, yeah, I wish you the best with this. Uh, thank you. I would think you're going to try to do the you know, the film festival circuit once uh, once it happens, depending on your schedule. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. great, I, great. I really want to see what people think and mm-hmm. and hear their opinions. Well, I certainly hope uh, you know when uh, next year comes around that it will be at uh, San Diego Comic Con too. I think it'd be a great place for it, due to the subject matter of the film. So I think it, uh, I think the fans there would love to see it. So hopefully they can get it there. Oh yes, I hope so too. Yeah, that'd be a great venue for all of you. This needs to get out. This needs to be seen. That's a remarkable film. Yeah, I'm like keeping an eye on it. As soon as it comes to New York, I'm there. I definitely want to come see it. No doubt about it. Oh, well, thanks again, Capley. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Anytime, anytime. And, uh, hey, you do stuff, more stuff like this, so I've got more reason to talk, you know? Yeah, I look forward (laughs) to it. That'll that'll be my uh, new impetus. (laughs) There you go. All right, Capley, thanks again. Thank you. All right, bye-bye now. Bye-bye. There's more Trek Tuesday. 
so stay tuned.